Welcome to another edition of Divine Warrior Ninjutsu Podcast. I am Dashihan Jason Steves. This is December 2020. What a year so far. Today we'll be talking to Anthony Mitivier, who is a memory expert since we've been, at least with my own students, talking about memory this month. I think the ability to memorize things in ninjutsu is very important. It can help you to memorize passwords, codes, people's faces, crime scenes, just about anything you could possibly think of. Why would you not want to be able to memorize things quickly? So without further ado, we're going to get into it with Anthony Metivier, and hopefully you can gain some inside information that can help you out in your ninjutsu journey. Here we go. So tell us about yourself. Who are you and how did you get interested in memory techniques? Well, I'm someone who's actually trying to eliminate myself, <laughs> so to speak. So I've got this long-term memory project where I'm using memory techniques to see if, if there is such a thing as the ego and can we get rid of it. And so that all starts with having learned about memory techniques in the first place and practicing them with meditation over the years. And so because I had several years of success helping people use memory techniques for language learning when i started to learn about certain memory tech or meditation techniques that involve using sanskrit to more or less neutralize thinking then i knew that the game was on because it turns out there's a whole tradition of memorizing lots of sanskrit that is specifically designed to counteract the mind or neutralize thought so I'm no one. <laughs> so far, so good. I mean, I still have a, I still have a sense of self, but it is greatly reduced, which is something I never thought was possible. That's funny because we had just studied meditation just before coming to memorization. Oh wow! I had no idea that there would be a connection, but that's interesting. Yeah, there, there's. I wrote a whole book about it called The Victorious Mind, which is really going to be sort of part one of a, of a longer meditation, so to speak, on the connection between memory and meditation. I think that it's probably for a lot of people the key that can really improve their meditation practice. And for a people who are struggling with memory techniques, it's, meditation is the key that can really improve their their ability to use the memory techniques because so many people are so fried they can't pay attention for long enough to even learn a memory system let alone start to execute it that's right yeah well that's interesting i've never really realized the correlation your book that you just mentioned victorious mind is that out now yeah yeah it's been out since may 2020 oh yeah okay good i actually might look into that myself i'm uh really getting into the memorization. I see a lot of practical use for it. And I'm like, I need to sit down and devote some time to study this and to learn it and figure it out. So yes, any material I can get my hands on usually. So Victorious Mind, you're talking about on my reading list for sure. So how many different memory methods are there? Let's go with that. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that if we were to boil it down to a simple answer, it would be that there's just one. And it's the technique you're using. 
in order to accomplish a goal. Now, to make that a little bit more complicated, <laughs> what I would encourage a lot of people to just understand from the get-go is that memory is spatial in nature. There's something about memory that is spatial. And that means that anything that you think about is spatial, even if it's just in relation to time. So we're thinking about it now, or we're recalling it to memory now, and that will take place in a space. And it's taking place in space in your brain cells. So the technique that maximizes the most is called the memory palace. Although you might hear it called Roman room, journey method, apartments with compartments, like there's many, many different ways that people talk about this. But what what they're referring to is taking some sort of spot in a room or along a, a street that is in your mind and then weaving it together with a an association and something you don't know. So if it was a name like Jason, I would be thinking instantly of, you know, like Jack in the Box restaurant and Jason Newstead from Metallica. Because now I've taken a space association and a pop culture association, and I've now linked them to you. And that's out in the world, but where is the world? The world is in my brain, right? In the brain cells. There's actually dendritic spines on the neurons. And so maybe that's the more complicated answer, but <laughs> it's uh, weaving together everything exterior in an interior way in that moment. And then the, it is just the one technique. So some people will do this purely associatively. They won't they won't think they're using space, but they, they, they technically are. Um, and a lot of people then will forget. But if you place things in memory palaces, like a jack-in-the-box restaurant, then you have a place to refer to to revisit that information, which then means that you have the opportunity to repeat it, which then means you can um, uh, get it into long-term memory. So... Then we can go on and list many, many other variations on this theme. And one thing that can frustrate a lot of learners is they'll hear about the Dominic system. They'll hear about the Ben system. They'll hear about the uh, shadow. They'll hear about pegs. There's peg lists, peg words, alphabet lists. And then there's the major system. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. But I believe that for most people, or at least as I like to teach it, we start with space because every other thing is going to harness the spatial nature of information one way or another. You mentioned memory palaces, which I'm familiar with, but then I heard you just briefly mention walking down the street as mm. a type of memory palace. So that's new. I hadn't heard that one. So would you just be using the buildings along the street the same way as the memory palace? It would depend on how you set it up. So, this is where a lot of people use the term the journey method because journey sounds like something you would do outside. Although uh, when Dominic O'Brien teaches the journey method, he will talk about rooms and uh, outdoor locations. But the reality is that what matters is not what you're using. What matters is how you strategize the journey so that you're not really drawing upon much, if any, 
mental energy. So one of the easiest ways to make a journey is just to take a room and use the four corners. Now that's not that much space to use, but at least it's a no brainer. You don't have to think about it. You're not giving yourself huge cognitive load. Uh, and you yeah. just go from corner one to two to three to four and you have to decide, well, which corner, right? And so to optimize it, pick the corner that is going to lead you to an exit as opposed to starting at, at the entrance or exit that's going to lead you to a dead end yourself towards an exit so then you can add more and then you're journeying through a memory palace and you're doing it in your mind but um, if this is all too abstract for people I always recommend they draw it out by hand so that it can help you see what you're doing and strategize it because otherwise it's not really a memory palace if you have to memorize it right you just want to make it's a it's a it's decision parameters that remove having to think about what the journey is. It's just like corner, maybe the wall, the next corner, the next wall, etc. Now you got not four places but eight places in a room because you got corner wall, corner wall, corner wall, corner wall. Um, if you really want, you can use the floor and the ceiling, and then you've got ten, and um, that is classically called the bond cube. Um, which is just a kind of arrangement that Dean Vaughn uh, formalized. So again, it's the same thing, but a new name. So there's potentially infinite <laughs> numbers of memory techniques. Uh, and, and that's why I say there's only one, which is the one that you use. So if you school and train yourself, then that's effectively all that matters is you, you build your own systems. So yes, we talked a few times about the memory palace and I know I basically understand what this is, but if someone who's listening or doesn't know quite what this is, could you maybe really quickly in a nutshell explain how that works? Yeah, uh, I apologize. I, 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 I'm so into it that I... I That's forget. okay. <laughs> I forget, so to speak. Um, it is a mental recreation of a location. Uh, but ideally, it's, it's, it's not that you're spending energy on creating it. It's just that you spend the energy on strategizing it. So if we say, I want to memorize 10 words and we want to use a memory palace, then we're just going to think, what's the best possible location to use? And say, it's the room that you're in now. And I'm just going to look at that room and I'm going to make a mental recreation in my mind of that room. And I'm going to then use it to place associations. So a memory palace is a mental recreation in which we place associations that help us remember information we don't know. And it's kind of, you could you could think of an analogy like a canvas is a blank space that a painter uses to use paint on to represent images. And in this case we're using the canvas of a room or an outside walk that we like to use paint. And so again, like Jason Newstead would be my paint to help remember your name. Um, and the Jack in the Box restaurant would be the canvas. And so if you think about Mona Lisa, something instantly comes to mind. Why? Because somebody created a little memory palace there, which is a canvas that has the portrait of a woman. So that's it. Even if you don't 
see it in your mind, you still have that sort of reference. So that's essentially what we're doing is, is placing things in our minds based on real locations or imaginary ones and then suiting them up or, or placing things in them strategically so that we can remember what it is that we want. And you can memorize pretty much anything. So, you know, I could sit here for the next half an hour and recite a hundred lines of Sanskrit. And some of it is here. Chitameva Maha Dosham, right? There's Chet from the Hardy Boys. Uh, there's my friend Tam. I actually know a guy named Tam for Chitam. And uh, Maha is a cement company. I don't know if you know that company. Chitameva Maha Dosham. Homer Simpson. He goes, do, all the time, do, and a chamois. So he's saying that while he's washing a car. And um, that's how I, how I memorized that uh, that Sanskrit. And it's just hanging right there, right now. <laughs> I can almost see it, actually. I can imagine it as you're saying it. So, yeah. And Jason Newstead is a great analogy, too, because I love Metallica myself. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a memorable, memorable guy, that's for sure. <laughs> And that's part of the okay, that's part so, of the strategy, right? Is you pick yeah. things that are already memorable. You already have remembered them, so you're reducing all the work, right? Now, some yeah. people say, "But I'm not creative. I'm not imaginative, and all that sort of stuff." And the reality is, is nobody is in the beginning. It, I was very rusty, and if I take off time and I don't practice, I'll get rusty again, just like any bike chain in the world. Uh, so. The beauty of this is is to treat it like a martial art of the mind. Show up and uh, you know, make sure that you're well oiled so that you can execute the moves when you need to, and that's a uh, a beautiful thing about it. But anybody, uh, anything that comes into use will fade if you don't continue to use it. Uh, so anybody's worried, oh, he that guy, he just thinks a lot, and Jason Newsted comes to mind so fast or whatever. It's not true. Um, it's just a practice, but everybody has more pop culture junk in their head than necessary. And the way we do it is actually to not even really think about the pop junk, pop culture stuff first, but just think about the letter, right? Everybody has the alphabet in their head. It's free, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J. Oh, J, right. Okay. So who else has a J? Well, you know, and if you really think about it, you could probably think, yeah, I do have an Uncle John or, you know, I have whatever. And you could think about their house and uh, you could just get out a piece of paper and write out a lots of J's. Jughead from Archie Comics and um, Felicity Jones. I, I don't even know who that is, but somehow she's in movies these days. And, you know, and it's just like these these endless names that we just have access to. And that's how you do it. And you just practice it. It will feel rusty in the beginning. And it may feel rusty again if you take a pause, but you can just build up to it and then you get faster and faster. And I'm not even particularly fast. I just, you know, practice uh, to a sufficient degree that I can use it. So if taking what you were just talking about, then if you were a, say, like a government agent and your job was to maybe if you didn't have a notepad with you or something or you only had a very brief amount of time and you had to study a crime scene or maybe someone's face because you only saw them for a second. How would you memorize those types of things? Well, uh, I, I believe that agents are taught some of these, these techniques and I think so. 
when it comes to faces, that's a little bit different. So if I wanted to, you know, have a much clearer idea of what your face was later, I'm going to pay very, very close attention to the nose and to the eyes. And the, the reason why is they say in, in a lot of neuroscientific studies is that the brain actually tracks this shape um, quite closely and this shape. So they, they teach a lot about just focusing on those things. And you even can think about them like numbers. So the nose has seven in the, in the, and just kind of like you're painting with a brush over those things in those shapes. And that can help get you a better sense of a face. Um, also for details, uh, if you go from top to bottom and you just force yourself to just think about four things, not a hundred things, but just four things. So mustache, blue shirt, I can't see the rest of you, but we'll just go with like black um, earbuds and it was white marking. So those are four details, right? And um, if, if you treat the body as this kind of memory palace, right, and you think very specifically, okay, so this mustache and the blue shirt and the white and the, the black uh, earbuds, and you think of them where they are relative to this shapes that you've already focused on, you're going you're, you're gonna to remember them a lot better. Actually, I had a situation, a friend of mine before the lockdowns, it was... Uh, almost a year ago now, in December, he came, visited me in Brisbane. And one night we went out of the building, we were getting in an Uber. And there was this drunk guy in front of our building, uh, basically hassling some young women for uh, cigarettes or whatever. He had like an empty cigarette um, box. And he was just being strange. So I called the police. And I was in the Uber, we're driving away, and I was telling the police, we're driving away, but the guy, he had a widow's peak, his hair was brown, I don't remember now what all the details were, but I told them about his shirt, I named the cigarette package, and what his shoes were like. And uh, everybody in the van is looking at me like, what the heck, <laughs> you remember all that stuff? And the police were like, how do you remember all that stuff? It's, it's like, well, I do memory training. Um, but I just made a deliberate thing to look at four details about this guy. And those were the ones that I picked. And the, the police were, thank you, and we'll, we'll come by. And I'm sure they had an easier time finding him. He, he wouldn't have been hard to find anyway because he was being boisterous and disruptive. But, you know, that's how those people do that. Um, that's part of the training as far as I understand. And I've, I was a store detective for quite some time, and that's where I picked up some of these, um, these techniques because you – do have to report to the police and you have to be a little bit more specific uh, than just um, he was a guy. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I was reading something about uh, when it, when it comes to people, everybody's average. So when the police say, what did he look like? Well, he was average height, average build, average this and average that. And that doesn't help them one bit. They need very specific information. And most people totally miss it. Yeah. Yeah. And incidentally, that four details exercise is just great brain exercise. It's a great habit to get into a couple times a day. And to start to get just some, you know, it's going to be fairly modest memory gains. But what you do is you, you make a, a pointed effort. Say you're going for your morning coffee and you pick one person, you notice the four details. Two to three hours later, just bring to mind what those details were. And this is what, it's, it's called passive memory training. Now, would you store those in a memory palace or maybe not bother? Well, if you want to make it active, then you would 
use some sort of memory palace technique, um, which is going more for gold. But if you it, for people who just want to get started and they don't want to you know put a, a bunch of stress on it, uh, not that there is, but you know, so it, it feels like these days you got to have like endless overwhelm caveats for everything. But uh, <laughs> if you you know if you have a person in your family who's starting to show signs of Alzheimer's or dementia and you're looking for something for them to do and you don't want to throw like memory training at them, just the four details exercise has been shown in studies to help get back some basic um, uh, abilities. Uh, and it's, it's, it is called passive memory supposed to active. And more active would be, all right, I saw this person, there's four details. I'm going to on the project onto the wall, you know, something that helps me remember the color blue, or I'm going to place on his body, you know, I'm just thinking of some song that was blue, 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 whatever. Um, I can't remember what the song was, but, and that's a weird thing about memory. You often won't even remember what your associations are, but you remember it enough that it works. Um, uh, but in any case, you would, you would make a deliberate effort to turn the body into space. And, you know, in, in the case of the handle, like a, a mustache like yours, I might think of Hulk Hogan, uh, for example, because it's sort of a similar shape or whatever. I actually took mine from James Hetfield from Metallica, but I liked Hulk Hogan too growing up. Well, there's an H in there. <laughs> and that, I, I point that out because that's part of what this technique is, right? Like, I might want to remember a detail like, oh, Jason corrected me. It wasn't a Hulk Hogan mustache. It was a Hetfield mustache, right? And then I'm paying attention to H. So now we've got more tools. We've got Hetfield. We've got Hogan, you know, on and on and on. And the more you play these games in your mind, the stronger you get at association. So now that if you've memorized something, how long can you anticipate this will stay in your memory? Like, is it for life once you get it in there permanent? Well, life is a long time. Um, <laughs> I, I think that the better way to answer that question is, what is the strategy? What is the need? What's the goal? And then you use the techniques in order to create that goal. So, for example, I do, before the lockdowns anyway, um, I do a lot of uh, pr public presentations and I memorize all the names of the people. Now, technically, I only need to know those names for the demonstration. And if I don't follow up with certain techniques, then I won't uh, remember them after the presentation. So while I'm memorizing the names, then I go and I recite all the names and everybody's like, wow, that's one level of strategy. But what I really like and what really blows people's minds, like I saw a guy not too long ago named Simon, who I met at a meeting, and uh, I just said, hey, is your name Simon? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, who are you? He's, he's like, who are you? I said, yeah, I remember two years ago, uh, we met at a meeting. <laughs> and he's like, I, uh, I'm the memory guy. And he's like, oh, wow, your stuff really works, right? Uh, but the thing is, <laughs> is that I didn't just do the, uh, the meeting technique i later for a couple of days i revisited all of those names sequentially and i used certain patterns and the patterns get it into long-term memory but there's no guarantee that i'm going to remember simon 50 years from now uh, although if every couple months or once a year i go through those patterns then i greatly increase the chances that i will remember it year after year after year so one 
kind of handy thing is to just keep business cards so that you can review them later. But you don't review them by looking at your business cards. You review them by writing the names down. So because I teach this and I also really care about people and uh, want to be able to do this, every so often I'll go in my memory journal and I'll just write down the names from all the presentations that I've given. And then I'll go and look at the business cards and give myself a score. And uh, so far, I've lived in Brisbane for four years and my score is 99.9%. And uh, I had wow. forgotten one name and I, it was actually while I was explaining this. And I just was like, why can't I remember this one person's name? And then I have to go, and that's a great memory exercise in and of itself. And um, then you reflect and then, then you, oh, right, Katrina. <laughs> that's what it was. And you think, well, obviously Hurricane Katrina is not strong enough in association. So what else am I going to put in there? And then you think about, you know, Kate from a certain Shakespeare play. Now that's too abstract. And you go on and on and on. But anyway. The, the, to repeat the direct answer to the question, what is the goal? And then you build the strategy. And um, for language learning, it would be different. It would look different than, than names for the rest of your life. Um, there, and we could talk about that, but it really just depends. There's nothing forever, and there's not, I don't think that there's anything for life, but I think you get close to for life, and it would just be having the strategy to do it. I see, then revisit them once in a while. To oil the chain, to use your metaphor. Like for another example, I have over now 100 verses of Sanskrit, and I recite them every day. I've been reciting them every day for a couple of years. But I have a feeling stopped. And it might be an interesting experiment. I'm not willing to do it, but uh, it'd be interesting to like let a year go by and see what my accuracy would be after a year, because... Several years of recitation will have a forgetting curve. Uh, it just will. Um, and, you know, speaking of Metallica, there's lots of funny videos on the internet where they forget the lyrics, or Hetfield forgets the lyrics to his own songs, you know, and he just is inserting some other random stuff. <laughs> so even I've seen some of those videos. They played thousands of concerts. I mean, uh, I, I saw some crazy number. I didn't memorize what the number was, but it was something like that they played Enter Sandman, you know, a hundred thousand times or something like this. And, uh, there still will be mistakes in, in that lyric, uh, from time to time. So. Yep. Wow. We go for pro progression towards better really perfectionism and perfectionists aren't even good at, at perfection. So, you know, take what we can get. It's, it's a martial art, right? You're, 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 you're going to get a smack once in a while. It's just the way that it goes. Yep. Yep. So not that I anticipate this happening to me, but is it possible to lock a memory away so that under coercion in some way, maybe hypnosis or truth serum, could someone get it out of you? I believe there are people who have died under duress, uh, <laughs> but I don't know their secrets. And uh, it, it could be any number of explanations that have allowed them to keep that. Uh, under duress. Um, and I don't know that we would want to explore all those explanations, but you can imagine that the brain, I mean, people think that they, they, they exist. They think that, that they have a solid, stable identity and personality and all that sort of stuff. 
but everything that's happening to you and yourself of sense of awareness is the production of positive and negative ions flowing through synapses and all kinds of other brain processes. So if you're being waterboarded or um, all this, I think the last thing that you're thinking about is, you know, what special technique am I going to use to protect this secret? Whatever happens in those situations that allows some people to uh, keep their secrets and others not, I don't know. Um, it is an interesting question, but... Uh, Maybe it falls outside of the scope of this. Yeah, and it, yeah. we'd almost want a specific example to really to really think it through and and just ask a person who's who's maybe successfully done it what what happened and I bet their answer would surprise us. It wouldn't necessarily be what we think. And we you know we we do have kind of a case study in a way. Giordano Bruno, who um, wrote many of the books uh, in in the 1500s that that we still refer to to this day to improve our memory practice, he was burned at the stake and he was under serious duress. And if you read his, his interrogation, cause they, <laughs> those guys documented everything. You can read how he answered questions and so forth. Um, it might give you a different perspective on the nature of the question and maybe potential answers. Um, because, in a way, he did keep his secrets, um, and he basically told them when they sentenced him to death, he said, I think you fear that outcome more than I do. <laughs> so, you know, he, that was his last hurrah in a way, and I'm not sure they understood what he meant, but I certainly do, um, or I feel like. Yeah. So I know we talked about a few related to this next question, but what are some practical reasons for enhancing your memory? Like I know seminars and stuff, but I think maybe what I'm asking is maybe as a professional other than secret agent, what, what benefits could you use to apply this to your, your job? I guess your career. Well, the practical benefit, is it really career? I mean, I think it's quality of life. So for example, for whatever reason, people aren't future oriented, but wouldn't you want to be your best possible self as grandpa or grandma, totally capable of enjoying the present moment with your grandchildren and imparting with to them the wisdom of your ages, of your age, rather, or whatever your era, um, with clarity, with precision, and in a way that made an impact so that you know they're enjoying you and you're enjoying them? That's the ultimate practical thing. Then professionally, it's the same thing. Wouldn't you want to be totally present with each and every customer, every employee, every potential partner with your business and totally focused on them being able to track the details of everything so that you can execute efficiently later and effectively? I mean, the practical benefits are massive. Uh, and they will help fend off dementia and Alzheimer's just by practicing it. And you'll have a great career that exceeds what, to use that word from before, the average person <laughs> would have, right? And um, yeah, it's, it's just like it's just every possible advantage comes from this, both in the short, the median, and long term. And of course, if you're a student, then you're going to perform better on exams and and 
that's going to translate for your career as well. So daily practice, I recommend uh, for everybody. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in learning Japanese myself, and I think a lot of people listening are too, just because of the nature. But um, I noticed in one of her videos too that you were talking about ta, the hiragana yeah, yeah. for ta. And uh, I have, I've learned hiragana too, but I kind of use the same method. Like, what does that look like? And it helps me to remind myself of what it is. But as far as other words in kanji, and I have a hard time learning the j vocabulary of the Japanese. So I noticed on your website, you mentioned applying this to language learning. So yeah. how can I use this for Japanese? Right. Well, it's very fun and so much, so easy. I mean, I, I abandoned Japanese because I met somebody and then I wound up going to, well, actually I went to China and then I met somebody and then I got into, into Chinese. Uh, I was invited to teach memory in China. And uh, so my, I'm more familiar with the Hansa, but it's a, uh, sort of the same in, a, in, a, in some sense. So when we think about characters, what we're thinking about is really character. We're thinking about sound. We're thinking about meaning. Uh, and we may be thinking about, I, I don't know the extent to which tonality plays into Japanese. Um, I, I don't think it's as inflected as, as, as Chinese, but there may be some tonal things like pronunciation and whatnot. Um, and then we've, we've got to think also about the fact that this is going to be combined somehow, because you're going to have hiragana, katakana, and kanji in, in your case. Um, and there'll be multiple readings sometimes uh, of these, of these different uh, displays. So that's going to be a challenge. And so where do you start? Well, I would start by learning memory techniques first and foremost, and then you're going to want to, as, as you mentioned, you're going to want to think, can I use imagery to help with something like ta or um, uh, yi, uh, ka, whatever it is, right? And then you've got diacritical marks. What are you going to do with that, right? Well, you're going to need to just say, uh, am I in with memory techniques or not? And then if you are, then you learn that anything that exists in space can be related to in an associative way in space. So if you're just with the hiragana, then, you know, build a memory palace that's a bit bigger than you need because there are diacritical marks, etc. And you you don't know that everything's going to fit. So I would go for 60 stations or so in one memory palace, not what we were talking about before. Although you can certainly start with just four, just the first four hiragana, for example. And you then start and you, you know, you're going to think, well, how am I going to do this? And, and in my case, I'm thinking about one guy that I can follow all the way through. And I thought of Ezra Pound. Why Ezra Pound had some spent some time with uh, Japanese studies. Uh, and so he just sort of came to mind. And so now I'm following him. I see him with, you know, uh, ah, so he's going to make some kind of ah sound, right? And we got to figure out why that he's doing that. And he's going to make e sound. So why is he doing that? And I remember seeing eels jumping out of his mouth. And, uh, you know, uh, ooh, why is he doing ooh? Oh, well, he's got this cane and he's leaning over. And the cane actually kind of looks like that, right? Uh, if memory serves. And um, then we go on and we get to Ka, right? So what is he doing? Now Ezra Pound's wearing a Superman suit because Ka is Ka-El, right? 
And uh, I hope this is right. I haven't done the hiragana for a long time. But uh, <laughs> I think there's a ka, and it kind of looks like this. And then there's like a little thing like this. Uh, and um, so is Kael is Superman's name, I think. Uh, or his dad was Kael, or whatever. One of the his dad guys. was Jor-El. Yeah. Jor-El, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, memory, <laughs> it works. Um, so <laughs> Superman's bending this thing while a bee is attacking him, which is kind of like this rail that he's bending with a B is kind of like this Ka Hiragana character, right? And then you just follow him. Then you get to Ta. Now Ezra Pound has machine guns, right? Ta, 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 ta. And, uh, and on and on and on. Mu and Ma and all this stuff, right? Um, then, okay, so now we've got diacritical marks to add, right? Um, so we can take the Ka, and how are we going to change it? Because I think the diacritical changes it to a Ga sound, if memory serves. Um, so... Now, who is one of Superman's enemies that starts with G, right? And then maybe you don't find somebody, right? But um, then you could think, oh, well, I don't know, um, Gad or Gal is her name, uh, who played Wonder Woman, uh, something like that, Gal. Gal Gadot or something. Gal Gadot, yeah, I was stretching for her last name there. But um, that could be a pathway. Anyway, now that's pretty simple stuff for the, the here again and now you're going to get to these like really wild characters right um well there it's the same thing but it's just a little bit more elaborate and uh, one one thing that people can do is read heisek and get some general idea from him uh but the thing that heisek is missing is a couple of things he's not teaching you about association and he's not giving you any He's not teaching you, like, how would you use the alphabet, like I've been doing, um, to just dig into all kinds of potential associations that you could make. And there's no memory palace, and there's not really any kind of recall strategy so you can get it into long-term memory. So I still think his, his work is very valuable and great, but I think you'll, you, you'd benefit by adding these things that we're talking to. And no matter how elaborate that character is, it's going to be built from other characters and it may have clues now i'm referring here more to to uh what i know of chinese than japanese now but there will be sometimes a sound component in the character there will sometimes be a meaning component and there may be just an uh, some other sort of formal component that can give you clues and so when you learn how to even just see those components you're going to start to develop pattern recognition oh, this character must have something to do with X, right? And then you might even be able to make educated guesses at how it should sound. Uh, and it's not bulletproof, but it's just a sort of strategy. And then you can think, well, maybe if I organize some of these characters in a memory palace, I can make a very efficient and effective bridging figure who I follow around and get more mileage out of it. So... The price to pay there is that every person has their own language learning journey. And so you have to figure out which characters you're going to learn, when you're going to learn them, based on your interests, what you're trying to achieve. But there is a way, and these memory techniques can help uh, immensely. So that relates to the, the characters. I'm not so bad, but I have difficulty really with vocabulary. It's right. important. I'll learn a bunch of words, and then the next day I forget them. So how would you tackle like Japanese vocabulary as opposed to the characters? Ah, okay. Well, um, 
if you if you were just doing oral learning, which uh, is not a bad idea uh, in the beginning, like some people recommend up to two years just with like Romaji uh, or transliterated spelling uh, or pinyin as it's called in, in Chinese. You would it, it's sort of the same process minus minus the characters or minus the hiragana. So I mentioned, you know, ka, right? Well, maybe that's not a word, but what if it was a word? I don't know. Do you have a Japanese word in mind? Like uh, mutsu kashi kunai well, or something. Well, ka is uh, fire, so it can't be fire. Oh, okay. Um, I was just thinking, I think it's mutsu kashi kunai or mutsu kashi kunai. Uh, which I think can also be in Japanese pronounced as mutsu kashikunai. Anyway, I don't know Japanese, but um, from what I understand, mutsu kashikunai is something like it's not difficult, right? So okay, yeah, it's yeah. got that ka thing there. Maybe there's a relationship to fire. I don't know. Um, and I don't know that I'm saying that correctly. I just learned that from one of my students who was learning Japanese, and he's just like, I've never forgotten it because I created imagery for it, and I, and I hope I'm getting there somewhere. But I remember telling it to somebody, no, no, it's Mitsukashi Jinai. Anyway, I don't know. Maybe it's a regional thing or a use thing, a grammar thing. But if we were to take, it's not that difficult, and it is Mitsukashi Jinai. Um, now we've just got more, we, we need more imagery. And so same corner, actually it was that corner, which you can't see represented on your screen. <laughs> And there's also Sanskrit in that corner. So that answers the question, can you Absolutely. But um, there I had something like a cow, moo, and uh, Johnny Cash. And I had another cow, which was a little bit confusing because in German, coo is cow. So I had like cow, Johnny Cash, cow, and then Mutsukash Kunai, Kunai, Mutsukash Kunai. Um, Oh, I think I had I had a Chinese cow there too because um, neonai is uh, Chinese for milk. Anyway, um, to the extent that I remember that correctly, it works. Uh, and it, you may notice that there are there are I wouldn't call them pitfalls, but there can be points of confusion where you're like, okay, so you got two cows and three languages in the same place, and then you know that sometimes it'll come back and you'll just You'll puzzle yourself. But if you do the actual work and you get it into long-term memory through the revisitation, the imagery actually goes away. And as you've seen today, I can't even really remember sometimes what the associations were. And it doesn't really matter as long as you have that core material. And, um, you know, later today I'll go and ask my uh, my student, what was it again? And he'll say, yay or nay. But uh, <laughs> um, it... Uh, it, it, it does work very, very effectively, and that's how you would do it. Now, the question is, how do you remember that it means it's not difficult? And there, Johnny Cash has to be doing something, and it, what he's doing, I don't remember what it was, but if I had to do it again, he's having a very easy time milking those cows. Uh, and it would be in a zoo. I remember a zoo. And it might be like Zoo Station from U2. So now Bono, who is, you know, the epitome of ease and relaxation, you know, um, maybe having a difficult time in this image and he's learning how to melt cows much easier from Johnny Cash, um, you know, who maybe was not so uh, cool and uh, relaxed all the time. <laughs> or so legend tells. Um, 
Does that help make it clear? Yes. Yes, I think so. I know that sometimes there are uh, like uh, championships where people race a timer to memorize things or a deck of cards. I was interested to know if a timer would introduce an element of stress that would be problematic. It does. I competed with Dave Farrow in the Ontario Science Centre in Toronto, and we not only had timers, but there were cameras on us uh, documenting the competition. And this was the first time I ever competed, and uh, that added a lo uh, uh, levels of distraction that I had never anticipated, because not only had I never competed, but I'd never even practiced <laughs> to compete. <laughs> but I still did have as well, and he's got two Guinness World Records for cards. Um, so that, I mean, it is only half as well, but it, it, it still is a testament to what's possible. But yeah, it adds stress. And um, I would recommend that people give it a go. But one way to, one way to do it without a timer is to, to try memorizing with a metronome running. Really? Uh, because you do oh. want to, I mean, if you want the skill to scale, because, uh, you know, when 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 I first memorized that Mutsukesh Kunai thing, uh, you know, the, the, it was just within seconds. And part of that comes from practicing doing it fast to come up with the imagery. Um, and it's got that kind of bullet time feeling. So when I competed with Dave Farrell, we had two minutes. And in that two minutes, it feels like eternity. And you are slowing down time. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 did, I, I didn't even begin to think about practice. I had done some card practice in cafes, and I would put on heavy metal, and I, had, I would practice on trains, you know, and add all these levels of distraction. And that does help. Um, and also, when you're memorizing rooms of names, like, people aren't necessarily paying attention to you while you're doing it. Um, yeah. I've done it in bars where there's music on and why I've practiced with music playing just so that I can deal with distraction. Um, but yeah, it, it, it adds stress, but you also, as in a martial art, you just need strategies for being able to relax yourself and calm down and just practice under, under duration in, in the same way I imagine you would in a dojo add obstacles in order so that when the when the real situation comes, heaven forbid, in a, in martial arts context, um, you you have strategy for 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 dealing with obstacles. What do you call someone who memorizes for a living? <laughs> <laughs> a nemonist. A nemonist. A nem, starting with an M. Yeah, M like N mnemonic. M O N I S T. Nemonist. Yeah. Nemonist. Really interesting. I'm going to have to write that down. Yes, and um, in some sense, what I teach would be called nestic memory. So, nestic memory means the memory that refers to all other kinds of memory, or oh. nestic memory is is you know the the mother load, the the governing memory of memories. So, I was reading in some of the memory books. Some people were saying that people can be born with an ability of photographic memory. Other people say, no, they're not born with it. You have to develop it. And I'm just curious, what's your opinion on that? Well, my opinion doesn't matter. I'd much rather look at what the science says 
and what people say. <laughs> because if we just use critical thinking, well, for example, what use is photographic memory anyway? It, taking a photograph is visual. So, you know, how do you take a photographic memory of a Bach sonata? How do you take a photographic memory of the greatest meal you ever tasted or the smells and aromas of grandma's, you know, special dish? It's just a weird word. I don't know why people choose it. It's just ridiculous. It's such a limited, a limited idea for memory. Um, so I recommend all people just forget photographic memory. The, the, the thing that's being referred to really is eidetic memory and People, people have the, the idea that children have this really rich, absorbent, creative memory, and that may be, but I don't think it necessarily has to do with children. When we are in novel situations, which children are all the time because everything's new to kids, we have more norep norepinephrine, it's called, in the brain. And norepinephrine, uh, at least that's what science uh, studies show, uh, norepinephrine uh, creates more memory. So you might have heard of something called the airport effect, which is when you go and you visit a new city uh, or a new part of the world, you really remember that airport and you remember the trip in the taxi to the center of the city and walking into the airport or sorry, the hotel. And you just have this rich memory of arrival. Well, that's because your neuroepinephrine is just jacked uh, to the top levels because it's a new novel situation. So is that Photographic memory? Is it eidetic memory? I don't know. Th these are scientists. They they come up with words to describe phenomenon. Yeah. But is anybody born with some special memory thing? Yeah, maybe there's some people once in a while. But I don't think that there's any evidence that shows anything even remotely like this. And if you look at studies of what's called superior autobiographical memory, and this is where you know, you have these stories of people who remember the exact day uh, and they can tell you what was on Oprah in, you know, February of 1992 and all this sort of stuff. If you look at the actual studies of those people, what you find is that, yes, there may be some advantage there, but they also seem to have some sort of OCD, which is that they repeat stuff and they tend to have journals. And this, this, is not a, this is not an isolated thing. There's, there's been studies into this. So superior autobiographical memory seems to have superior autobiographical memory plus some sort of obsession. Um, and that makes much more sense, especially when you look at memory competitors and people like myself who just love memory techniques for everything under the sun, is that we are not obsessive compulsive in any way by nature, but we kind of adapt those behaviors because we say, look, we can use this memory palace. And if we just make the decision to go through it five, six, seven, eight times or whatever, we're going to remember this stuff for much, much longer. And so we impose a kind of OCD upon ourselves, but in a very healthy way, because you're all, I hope, because you can also let it go. You can allow yourself to make mistakes from time to time. If you meet the guy, Simon, or whatever, uh, you don't beat yourself up for it, you know, uh, that sort of thing. Because we see, and there's a famous case, Jill Price, she does beat herself up a lot. And uh, I encourage people to look into that case um, who are interested in these topics. Uh, but it's ultimately not for me to say whether photographic memory exists or not. I would just encourage you to use critical thinking. 
is that word really make sense for anything related to memory? And are people any good at self-reporting their own experiences? Not really. And what do scientists do? Well, scientists make up a lot of words and um, then they do, they do studies based on those words. And some of them aren't even very good at looking at memory history or history in any scientific field. So then they make up some new words when there already were words, but they just weren't aware of those words. But then they defend it to the death because of the way publish or perish works in the scientific communities. And by the way, I'm not anti-science, but I'm just pointing out uh, a, a reality. Uh, I'm very scientific, but there is problems in science that we need to address. So when people come across these ideas of photographic memory and so forth, just understand that nobody even knows where a consciousness is in the brain. and there's just a lot of words that people use for memory. And I would go back. How many memory techniques are there? The one that you use is how many there are. And so, you know, if you want to have better memory, work on it. <laughs> and you can have far better memory than a photograph, much, much more rich and detailed than uh, something that ancient technology these days. <laughs> It's funny because it wasn't too long ago, myself and some friends were talking about what's the best martial art. And they were, they all had the same answer and said, the one you're studying right now. <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah, yeah. I would just say study and practice. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, if you were prone to forgetting, say, if I'm in the middle of a task and someone interrupts me and I look over at them and then come back and I can't remember what I was doing, is there something that could help me in that situation? Do you understand yes. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's 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 other examples like you go, you leave your office to go and get some scissors from the kitchen, that kind of thing, right? Um, that those that they share a common characteristic, which is that new information has entered that has sort of knocked out the other information, new stimuli. So the number one thing to do is called the fist. And so if you're talking to somebody and you want to remember something that they said, like they give you a, a, a job or a task to do, or you want to remember a point to bring up in conversation later, you imagine that thing in your hand and you, make, you don't let go of that fist until that you've executed. You want to go and get some scissors in the next room. You make a fist and you say scissors and then you walk through that door because temperature is going to change. The sound quality is going to change. A person might come and be like, hey, or a dog or whatever. Things are going to change that just can knock that thought out of your head faster than, you know, you can shake a stick at. And um, that's the technique. It's called the fist. And it works in conversation as well as it does to go and get scissors from the next room. That's very interesting. I'll have to try that. I've never thought of that. Does it have to be a fist? I don't know. I mean, you could... You could carry a tack in your shoe or something, <laughs> but um, uh, the point is, is that old image you sometimes see of string tied around oh. a finger. I was just thinking of that. It's not an old fairy tale. It's it actually helps. And why? Back to what I said before. There's one memory technique. It's the one that you use, but it's always spatial, right? So you're putting something somewhere, and you're doing something that helps you retrieve it later from somewhere not just retrieve it from nowhere but from a specific place yep yep so if you're left-handed versus right-handed do you store memories differently i don't know but i'm sort of dual-handed so 
I'd have to. Yeah, um, me too. So I'd have to split test with a, a variety of people. Um, I'm not sure how to run such studies. I'm very. I would be very interested actually to to do those studies. But from what I understand, if there is any advantage for left or right or dual-handed or ambidextrous people, they still would have to learn techniques and use them. So I'm not a big fan of so-and-so has an advantage because X. Really what that means is so-and-so has executed a strategy the same way as everybody else had to, and if they had an advantage, so what? You know, uh, that doesn't stop you from, from... I mean, there may be some things like height in basketball or whatever, but even then... There's people, if they want to play basketball, they find a way no matter what height they oh, are. Yeah. So just, you know, yeah. get in there. Stop stop giving it. And, you know, this is an interesting thing. Uh, we, don't even, we don't even have to do the rah, rah, rah. Just get in there. There's actually an exercise that you can do, which is just analyze yourself. Do you have a bias for taking action and a bias for finding every reason why you can participate in some way in whatever it is you want to do? Or do you have a bias for finding every single reason why that you can't do something. If you can do that self-analysis, you can change your life, right? Because you don't have to be naturally inclined to be the solution guy, but you can train yourself to. You can notice that, you know, oh, I'm just sitting here figuring out all the reasons why I can't when I have all the evidence in the world that all kinds of people do and can, right? And uh, yeah, so left hand, right hand, I don't think it matters in the end of the day. And these memory techniques would work for children too. Uh, they 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 are known to work for children. Uh, I think around age six is where it really simple things come in, and then around around age ten they can they can really go quite well with with the memory palace technique. But I'm not an expert in that age group at all, and I'm just giving those ages just based on things that I've seen um, and very very few and far cases on my podcast. I've interviewed some 10 year olds um, and I did try to interview a six year old once, but although his father said uh, that there were some great things happening, he it wasn't, wasn't able to reproduce it or explain it very well. Uh, so that's where I'm getting those sorts of uh, ranges from. But 10-year-olds, in my experience, they seem to, and you, you could, all, it's not just my podcast episodes, but you can see some of these contest shows where they have kids around 10, 12, who really seem to be soaring with it. But I haven't seen much younger than that in terms of the memory palace technique. And you kind of touched on it briefly there earlier, but I... I just wanted to make sure I understood. So if you memorize things, is it possible for you to confuse them? Or maybe say that you mentioned Sanskrit. Do you ever accidentally start a verse and then accidentally go to a separate verse in Sanskrit and mash them together? Yeah, that can happen. Um, but it typically only happens in the learning phase. Uh, in, in the memory world, we sometimes call this wormholing, where you, you'll like be going through a memory palace and you somehow skip to a different part because... You know, you have Sarva, Sarvatra, uh, you know, and all kinds of things that are variations and it can kind of cause that to happen. But that's, um, a, it's pretty rare and isolated. You usually know that it's happening and um, correction is is quite easy. The, the thing is, is when it's happening, it's usually a sign 
of more things are working than not working. I mean, it's just a miraculous thing that you can actually portal from, you know, verse 40 to verse 70, just like that. I mean, that's, that, that's more of a good thing than a bad thing. Yeah. So if you, I don't know if you consider your brain more like a computer, but how much memory can we hold? Or would you say there's a limit? David Eagleman, who is a neuroscientist, says that we have a zettabyte. And a zettabyte is apparently something comparable to about 10% of all the information in the world. So wow, I don't know how that they measure all the information in the world, but uh, <laughs> there's, no, there's no chance that any of us are running out anytime soon. Not only that, but the thing that we need to understand is that that's just one neuroscientist uh, and that's in the story of your brain, by the way, uh, by David Eagleman. Um, uh, the brain, it's called. The story of you, I think, is the actual title. Um, it, the thing that I would point out is that that's memory in your brain, but then there's memory in other brains, right? So, you know, I don't own the alphabet. You know, <laughs> The alphabet is something we share. And so... If I want to access, you know, some specialist memory of the alphabet, well, then I can go and, you know, figure out what's in the brain of uh, some alphabetical specialist. Or I can just ask you, hey, Jason, what, do you remember where you when you learned the alphabet? And then you could tell me a story uh, or not <laughs> <laughs> by, your, by your gesture there. But um, you know what I mean? I, I can ask you about martial arts. Your memory is just loaded with stuff. And because of the nature of symbols and language, I could understand a great deal from you just by tapping into your memories. So we have more than a zettabyte. We have potentially all possible information on tap at any moment, and all the more so with the internet. Um, so yeah, I don't think memory, I think memory is truly the most unlimited thing in the world. I think memory is what we are actually um, in many ways, uh, not just information, but everything we know how to do is all procedural memory, opening the drawer, uh, everything. It's just, we, we are memory and the quality of our experience has everything to do with the quality of our memory. If we play something in our sleep, like, say, a poem or maybe a long poem, do you think that that type of memorization works? Like, would you, if you played it every night over and over again, would you retain it? There's some studies that some of that has an effect if you're learning a language, for example. I haven't read any studies that have to do with poetry retention. Um, but I don't quite know that those studies uh i don't know how they're testing that that the brain is actually perceiving this content because many other studies show that if you're not consciously attending to something you're not learning it you're not engaging in it or whatever um and you can look at even some of the old studies about uh subliminal messages and so forth they're they're they're, they're very clear that if you're if you don't have a conscious perception of something then there's not really any evidence that it's affecting you. Um, so if, are you conscious of things in sleep? Well, some people report that they are. They, they do certain lucid dream experiments with lights that go on, and then that helps trigger them, which suggests 
an awareness of external things. I've had lucid dream experiences. I've also had uh, sleep paralysis experiences. And I've had something else, which I believe is called in Sanskrit, nirvikalpi samadhi, which is this kind of neither lucid dreaming nor um, sleep paralysis. You're just aware that you're laying there uh, and you know you're asleep, but you're not dreaming or anything like that. And that's kind of wild. Uh, I wish I would. I wish I knew how to switch that on uh, on demand because it's quite blissful. But um, we'll get there. Um, yep, definitely. But in any case, if I were to switch on a poem, I don't think it would give me any special advantage, unless I was consciously attending to its rehearsal. And I imagine that that would be true of others, but ultimately, I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I'd rather get the sleep. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, me too. Because you can Actually, use memory techniques while you're awake, and it would just work just great. And my for myself, say I, I don't like stark uh, silence. I do like the background noise anyway, so I tend to play things in the background. But that's just me. Right, right. You had mentioned earlier. I just want to touch on this before we wrap up. Uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. I heard you bring it up a few times. What? Yes kind of impact does that have on the elderly who are starting to get into that? Like, would you say it's a preventative measure from getting that? Uh, it, there, there's positive studies. I mean, there's no, there's no hard and fast. Yes, absolutely. This is going to save you because there can be genetic, um, forms of it. Um, so there's different ways to, 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 to think about the problem. But I, I, I think of it a lot because my mother had early onset dementia and we managed to turn this around, which thank goodness, because it was the most terrifying thing I ever saw. Uh, I mean, she was starting to fall down, hurt herself badly to the point of, you know, breaking her face up when she fell on the road. Um, she couldn't tell me from my brother, really, really bad situation. Um, but fortunately totally turned around. So there's, um, every reason to believe that, you know, you want to get some good brain training going for yourself and, uh, mitigate it in advance if you can, or do something while it's happening. Uh, if you can, if you have the wherewithal and the support to do it. But as I always tell people, you know, don't rest anything on this or that technique or this or that lifestyle habit because it can happen anyway. And so probably the best strategy, and this might sound a bit cynical, but I think it, it's not at all and it's good-hearted. It's meant in a good way. It's just be the best possible person that you can now so that if you become a pest to your family later, then they have every reason to tolerate it and treat you with the best <laughs> possible care later because you did your best to be that best possible person. And that's a good policy anyway. Uh, so, you know, take it or leave it. But that's what I always tell people is that nobody gets any promises. And besides which you could have dementia like uh, problems or Alzheimer like to problems, just walking down the street and some moron throws a rock at you or uh, a, a rock falls from a, or you know something falls from a building or whatever. Like we, we can wind up in that situation for multiple reasons or, or, have problems like that just out of the blue so always live as your best possible self period um yeah that's right because the real torture does begin and unfortunately i i've seen this uh because i worked for east care 
uh, or Community Care East York in um, Toronto. And I saw all kinds of people who were abandoned by their families um, or treated very poorly by their families. And you could see anger and resentment that that, and I've heard people say that so-and-so never took care of me and what, what, I'm now burdened with this and all that sort of stuff. And that means that that person is even in even more suffering uh, because they don't have anybody who cares for them. And people do take revenge later in those yeah. situations. So the, the, the threat is real. So be the best possible you immediately and practice it daily. Um, is there something that you think I should have asked you that I haven't asked you already? Or maybe you want to put in a few last words of your own to our listeners? No, I think uh, this was great. And if, if, if there are any last words, let this be the beginning and not the end, because there's a, <laughs> you know, if you're not tired of listening to me, there's hundreds of hours of recordings on my YouTube and my podcast and yada, yada, yada. Um, but so if somebody wanted to get a, somebody wanted to contact you or listen to your material, where can they go? Well, it's all at magneticmerrymethod.com. And I would just encourage you to make memory a priority not every teacher is going to gel with you, but just find something so you can get this to make sense so that you can practice it. And one of my highest ambitions is to be like a university where, you know, it's about the, the content that's out there uh, more than this or that content so that people have range, choice. If this teaching isn't right, then they, well, try that one, you know. Um, so... Uh, guest professors welcome and we do have them on the podcast as well um so and your podcast is there on your website also yeah yeah uh there's a button there that helps people get hooked up to the podcast um yeah we we have a lot of fun it's a very it's a very 21st century decentralized <laughs> community and um i studied a martial art myself sistema or sistema um oh yeah i sort of run things like those classes where the teacher is the student and the student is the teacher, no belts, uh, no yep. bowing or anything like that. It's just, here we go. Um, let's learn together that kind of, uh, space. That's awesome. That's great. Well, I very much thank you for taking time out of your day to talk to us and maybe who knows, maybe in the future we can do a follow up to this or something. And yeah. Yeah, my pleasure. Reach out. Uh, it was fun. Yes. I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jason. And that wraps up another podcast, Divine Warrior Ninjutsu Podcast, episode number 21. If you have any information that you would like to submit to us, or if you have ideas for show content or submissions of any kind, or you just want to know a little bit more about us, you can contact us at divinewarriorninjutsu.com. Again, I'm the host, Daishihan Jason Steves. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, go away.